Thank you very much to everyone um, for joining today. We've had a bit of a break from our podcasts, um, a particularly busy period then um, coincided with COVID um, within our team, the dreaded COVID, but we're back and we're back with a bang. And today we're really delighted to welcome Scott Pacino uh, onto the podcast. He's the editor of telecoms.com for anyone that doesn't know. And I've been very fortunate to be on his podcast in the past. So um, we're the shoes on the other foot. So welcome. The favor. Yeah. Thank, yeah no, thanks a lot. It's, uh, uh, it's, it's always interesting to be uh, the interviewee. Oh, yeah. It do- probably doesn't happen that often, does it? Well, no. I mean, one of the dynamics which might be sort of germane to, to this conversation is obviously as a journalist, one of your privileges is you get to be the nosy one asking the awkward questions. Yeah. Um, and people generally have to at least pretend to answer them with a with a smile on their face. Um, but, the, um, yeah. That's quite a good opener, actually. What's the what's the kind of worst question that you think you've asked somebody? Well, I mean it's an interesting it's an interesting dilemma we all have, because to some extent I think all journalists are sort of playing journalism. They're, and I suppose we all are to a certain degree, sort of dilettantes, sort of acting as we think we should. But with journalism, there's more of a template because you see them all the time on on TV and all that sort of thing. So I think some journalists will start will sort of reckon themselves to be a bit Jeremy Paxman and yeah. go steaming in with uh, you know the really really awkward questions. Some people might take the longer one. Some people might be too sort of accommodating and and chummy, which I don't think really works. So it's down to each individual. I I do have some. I don't think I could ever be Paxman-like because I just feel sorry for the person I'm giving a hard time. But then again, if it was a politician who just lied to my face, it might put steel into my heart. But typically, if I'm interviewing someone, it's going to be an industry exec um, who will have some kind of very specific agenda. Uh, And I suppose the nastiest I would be is if they made a claim that I just didn't think was stacking up. And I'd just be like, well, where's the evidence? Where's the evidence that your new bit of software is the best thing since sliced bread? This is a claim you're making, but why should we believe you? I think that's a perfectly plausible thing. But, you know, if they just went, well, you know, yeah, you're just going to have to believe me. I'll just go, all right, well, I'll let the audience decide. That's the best answer. Yeah. Is there there a, because obviously you've worked in journalism for a while now, is there somebody that, that, that was kind of a mentor to you or somebody that you admire um, that should have showed you the ropes? Um, I wouldn't have, say a specific mentor. I very much just sort of learnt on the job, as, <laughs> as I alluded to a minute ago, kind of winged it. Um, I think, um, I mean, the ultimate person I would admire journalistically would be someone like George Orwell. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyone who just... Anyone who really looks for the sort of unvarnished truth, which which can be harder than you think, because actually getting to the bottom of what real truth is, rather than something that seems plausible or or, or consensus or something like that, like we're having this a lot, you know, with it, with this pandemic, people talk about the science, but mm-hmm. but there's no such thing because scientists don't all agree with each other. Mm-hmm. So who's the, who's this of all of them? Who's the science scientist who represents the science? There isn't one, is there? So so you've got that. I mean, I would say in terms of sort of more recent contemporaries, um, I definitely admire my former colleague and boss Ray Lemaitre, mm-hmm. who's now over in Telecom TV. I definitely admire my current colleague and co-podcaster Ian. I think he writes really good sort of analysis pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I suppose back in the day, I used to admire people who got real scoops, like the people who ran sites like the register and the inquirer when they used to genuinely find something, Mm. the scoops are quite rare these days. I think companies, I think they've got their security better. And, you know, I know that a lot of leaks are actually controlled leaks. They're companies who've decided whether it's like a trial balloon, you familiar with the term a trial balloon? 
No, I, I so a trial balloon is when something gets leaked deliberately. Mm. They'll never admit it's a deliberate leak, and they're looking to see what the market reaction is. So let's say company A is thinking of acquiring company B. They'll leak something to the FT or the Wall Street Journal or whatever. Um, and they'll just go, sources close to the situation um, have found out that company A is thinking of buying company B. Then there'll be some share price reaction. There'll be some public reaction. And that way they can gauge what market sentiment is to the move without having to say anything formal. So that's an example mm -hmm. of a trial balloon. And there's all kinds of other controlled leaks. Obviously, the public sector is always doing leaks, whether it's to punish errant ministers or whether it's to like nudge theory like we're having right now they're trying to get everyone to behave and wear their masks or whatever so but mm. it, i think on the whole you get less of that than you did years ago everyone's really i suppose back to back to your original question the ultimate paradigm for most hacks are woodward and bernstein and watergate you yeah know, that was a genuine leak and that was that was coming from the deputy director of the fbi it turned out although no one knew at the time but that's why every slight journalistic scandal now has gate as a suffix, because Watergate just yeah. became this, this, this absolute sort of statement of, of sort of journalistic achievement. So I guess something like that, a genuine leak, a genuine scoop, something getting something into the public domain that, that has not been there and the people you're writing about don't want to be there. That's real sort of cutting-edge journalism. I don't do much of that, I hasten to add. Well, it's the, it's the power of the press, isn't it? Yeah. Well, that's our job, is to get stuff in the public that, that wouldn't otherwise be there. Yeah. And it's, it's, the, it's the beauty of our press, that it is a free, a free press. And, um, you know, I'm sure you take quite a lot of pride in being part of that as well. Yeah, I do and I don't. I mean, the press can be pretty scummy. It's easy to sneer at a tabloid press. Um. And these days, I tend to be more disappointed in the mainstream press, not because of the tabloidy excesses, but because of how conformist and unquestioning it can be. Mm. I mean, you know, you see, I stopped listening to them for a while back, but do you remember like when the pandemic was first breaking and Bojo started doing those daily briefings? Yeah. Um, and the press got into a habit there, which they've still kept going, of just demanding more and more and more restrictions. Now, there's a, there's a school of thought that says that we should do that. Personally, my tastes are a bit more libertarian, but there doesn't seem to be any balance. Yeah, have Robert Peston going, why aren't you locking down more? But have someone else going, hold on a sec, you know, aren't we overreacting? So that, mm -hmm. that's where I get a bit annoyed at them now. And, and one other point about tabloid press. So freedom of speech is definitely a big thing for me, as, as it should be for all journalists, but isn't necessarily. That's another bugbear of mine. And I think freedom of press, to have a free press, you've got to take the rough with the smooth. So for every sort of elevated sort of FT sort of leak, you've got to have some grubby sun expose of some celeb caught with his pants down, unfortunately. You can't have one without the other. And people who try and censor some bits, some censor the bits of the press they don't like, while keeping the lovely guardian-y bits they do like, I'm afraid are deluded. You, you, you've got to have both or neither. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, that, there's been obviously a huge trend for more and more podcasts, hasn't there, over the last yeah. kind of, well, few years, but definitely over the last couple of years, and it's seen a real spike, obviously, during um, COVID. You talk a lot, a lot, don't you, about the Joe Rogan one? Yeah. What do you think... Um, it's the it, paradigm, I think. Yeah, what what is it that makes that one? So it's a it's a long one, isn't it? It is long. Typically about three hours. Yeah. I think, I think. I mean, if I had to put it into one word, I'd say authenticity. I think mm -hmm. authenticity has become a commodity, um, partly because a lot of the legacy media ha has been inauthentic, and and quite happily will report what it knows to be untruths as fact. Uh, and they've done, their, they've done their brand a lot of damage. Mm. You look at something like in the States and, and, the, and the Russiagate thing, which turned out to be completely fabricated, a hell of a lot of the media, because they all detested Trump so much, just ran with it on, mm. on the grounds that anything that's horrible about Trump, we're, we're going to go with. 
which is fine. If you hate Trump, you might have some sympathy for it, but that's not their job to be partisan. It's that their job is to tell the objective truth. Mm. Um, but podcasts, yeah, I think they're authentic. And that's what, that's what Rogan does. You might not agree with him. You know, he, he's of a certain type. He's, he's quite a sort of alpha blokey sort of person, but you can't listen to a bloke talk for hours and hours and hours on end and not get some sense of the measure of the person. Um, you know, it, it's the equivalent of, you know, getting to know each other face to face over lunch, mm. you know, over, over, over a two hour lunch with a few Aperol spritzes, <laughs> you definitely know the person better at the end of those two hours than you did at the start of it. Don't you? You definitely and, do. And maybe some people are really good at putting on a front and pretending to be something they're not. But I think over time, that facade crumbles and you get you do get a sense of who they are and I think that's what these podcasts do and I think you know like this format we've got now where it's basically just us two having a chat and recording it that's the format there's no room for showbiz there's no room for post-production mucking about um people just want to know the honest position of the person who's talking and uh, you just don't need to over-engineer it in fact it's it's better if you don't yeah. And do you, do you think um, we're going to see more and more podcasts and more of that kind of medium? Or do you think it's... Well, yes and no. I mean, we, I quite often, like within Informer, so Telecoms.com is owned by a big PLC called Informer. Every now and then someone gets in touch where their line manager's gone, you've got to do a podcast. And they don't really know where to start. And they sort of get in touch with me and, and I'll, tell them, I'll tell them what I think. And the technical side, you can get set up. We've got a little, as you know, a little mini studio in our office. But what you can't teach them is how to take risks. Like I was just chatting to a guy when I was in the office earlier on this week, a bit further up a food chain, and he was going, he listened to podcasts and he was saying he liked it. And I was going, but on our podcast, like we drink and swear a fair bit. And yet it's a corporate podcast. Now, if I'd gone to the people further up a food chain and pitched it if it wasn't already something i've been doing for years and pitched it i went like check it out we're gonna have a podcast and we can get pissed and we can say fuck the whole time uh, <laughs> they'd probably go yeah scott maybe not um but now that it's out there and it's popular and people enjoy it the sort of genie's out of the bottle and, and i promise you no one's ever tried to push back on it um so that's the tricky bit is is daring to be authentic daring i mean obviously you don't have to swear i just happen that happens to be how i talk anyway yeah. um uh and and not not filtering yourself just just talking about whatever i mean obviously every adult's got some filter certainly every parent has had to develop a filter at least yeah. while their kids are younger mine are teenagers now so i can start swearing again yeah. um every civilized human being's got some kind of filter because you have to have that to exist in the world but you want to be as unfiltered as possible and perhaps sometimes test the boundaries of that as well yeah so have you got kind of um an ideal guest in mind um for your for your podcast for next year it, it, it like really varies i mean there's two types there's people i get on with which is the main reason you were on, because I knew we'd have a good chat. Didn't really matter what about. Yeah. I just I just knew I just knew we'd have a good natter. And that would still be the priority. But yeah, no doubt getting a CEO of a big like operator or or a vendor or whatever. Um, you know, we might still get someone senior from Nokia on, you never know. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, that would that would obviously that that's has that has more journalistic value. Um, but, you know, we've always said that they've got to understand the rules of engagement. There's no point in getting, you know, Mr. Bigwig on and he's going to be all stiff and he's going to have handlers and he's going to be all press trained and and just want to talk about his talking points or her. Um, you know, that wouldn't work in the format that we do. But, yeah. yes, you know, the, the ideal combination would be someone as, you know, um, someone who's running a, a massive company but is also relaxed and chatty and, and doesn't mind having a beer Funny. or a diet yeah. gin and tonic. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You've still got some of your leftover G&Ts. Because well, we drink beer and no one's touched them. Oh, I, I was hoping they'd be for um, Dean Bubbly. He wasn't keen. 
Really? Yeah, no, he brought he brought plenty of his own actually. <laughs> a shame. Never mind. Never mind. Well, I'll be back on. I'm sure. Well, there we are. They might they might still be there. You'll recognise them. Tonics, yeah. Um. So with with the podcast, obviously it goes live, doesn't it, on a Monday, and you record yeah. it on a Thursday or Friday. What yeah. does the rest of your week look like? How how's it all kind of structured? I know you've got um some support, haven't you? Finally, so you've Finally. been onboarding Andrew. That's right. Yeah, Andrew Wooden, new deputy editor, and someone I knew um, beforehand, which is handy. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, we, we don't have to get to know each other. But, um, yeah, I mean, typically everything about telecoms.com, so it's a very small operation. For the last year and a half, it's just I've been the only permanent editorial person at all. Mm. Um, and um, with some freelance help, uh, Nick and Mary used to edit tel- Total Telecom, and they're great. I'm very lucky to have them. Um, and it's all about the newsletter, which goes out about two or three in the afternoon. So the morning spent about the first hour spent looking at my emails, checking out the traffic from yesterday, the website traffic, um, probably procrastinating and dicking about on Twitter or something for a bit. Um, but then just seeing what's going on and trying to work out what we're going to write about. And, um, you know, we'll put up four to six stories. Hopefully it'll be more regularly six now that Andrew's here. And so you've got to pick them, and that can take a long time. This time of year, there's not a lot of news. So I think where journalists start to really earn their money is on quiet news days. And you have to do a bit of, um, for want of a better term, turd polishing and just find something that's not that interesting and find a way of writing it up in a way that that justifies you inflicting it on your audience. Um, and so, you know, you've got to find an angle uh, I mean, you could, you know, some journalists, especially younger ones, won't have the confidence to do it and they'll just turn it around and they'll go, yeah, this thing happened and they all lived happily ever after and it's not much of a story. But if you go, this thing happened, but here's the context and here's why it might blow up in their face and, and, you know, here's some more intrigue around it. Then, you know, then that that gets a little bit more interesting. Or I sometimes inject a bit of humour in, like I got an email from... um, from my contact at Virgin Media today, because I wrote up that they'd hit some little milestone of their network. And, uh, and there was a quote from their CEO, a guy called Lutz Schuler, I think. And he was just giving it large, being really bombastic at using, you know, saying how this has catapulted the UK a decade forward and just really hyperbolic language. And I just went, yeah, this, this, he's clearly from the same school of you know, language hyperbole as, as John Ledger, who used to be the head of um, T-Mobile US. And I said, and he's even got the haircut to match. And it turns out that they've both got this sort of swept back, long hair down to about their shoulders. And I even hyperlinked to the Virgin Media um, sort of uh, uh, executive team page. Anyway, the, my, my press contact found that quite amusing. So, you know, when you get when you've been doing it as long as I have, you get you get a little bit confident and cocky and you don't mind injecting a bit of humor. But you're just adding value to the story, to an otherwise dull story. You know, Virgin Media's done this, well done, clap, clap. How yeah. do, how do you spice it up a little bit and make it more entertaining or informative or whatever? So that's a big, big part of it. And so you, you spend the morning doing that. Then I publish the stories. I'm I'm managing the freelancers, publishing their stories. Then I've got to just get the newsletter together, proofread the newsletter, ping that out, and then that's about two or three. And then mm. that's a natural gap in the day. I'll normally walk the dog, if I'm honest. Um, I have had some days, like when in the summer when it's sunny, I just go, right, I sit, I'm walking the dog for the rest of the day. There's, yeah. a, there's a nice country pub that's about an hour's walk from me. I just stick my work laptop in my rucksack, walk the dog there, get a pint, flip open the laptop, you know, answer some emails so people didn't think I'd totally skiving. But not this time of year, that's for sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, and in the afternoon, I might I might write another story, but typically I'm just dealing with other little bits and bobs. Uh, yeah. it, it could be emails. It could be I, I've got other things I have to do, like managing the, the Glotel Awards. I've got to do all that. I might be helping out with the commercial content side of it. Um, you know, all that sort of thing, really. That's my so, day. So if um, if a, a PR person or a company is trying to get hold of you or pitch you a story, is there a sort of deadline that people should be keeping in mind? Depends. I mean, if it's about something that's that's that we might write up that day, then, yeah, the sooner the better. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, that's a really typical, difficult thing that your profession has is adding value in a timely fashion. So, you know, let's say I was writing up this Virgin thing and you had a, you had a client who's also involved in fixed line or the technology they've used, Toxis 3.1 or something exciting like that. Um, and they had some comment on it. Um, then you, you'd need to have got your shit together pretty quickly and got it to me, you know, ideally in the morning. Or yeah. at least reached out and gone, you know, we've got this person, they might have to comment on it, that'd be useful. And if I went back, then you'd need to turn it around sharpish. And obviously that's not down to you most of the time, is it? It's down to your client and whether they have any sense of urgency. Um, but you know, part of your, your job, I presume, is saying, look, if you don't if you don't do it in the next hour, don't bother, because it's not gonna happen. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about the whole embargo debate? Uh, receiving a, a you know a press release or an announcement in advance of it kind of going out more mm. wide as long as you kind of agree to the embargo I wonder how t- sometimes I wonder how much of a PR trick it is mm-hmm. I mean there's a few things I've noticed over the years I'm not pointing the finger at your agency specifically but there's a few things I've noticed over the years of, of why how PR professionals might try and move mm-hmm. things up the inbox or, or make it more make it more prominent um, I mean, obviously, there's the time-honoured tradition of sending an email and then phoning up 15 minutes late to see if people have got it, which well, is a bit disingenuous because, yeah. of course, they got it because it hasn't bounced back, which is why I've stopped I stopped answering my phone about five years ago, incidentally. Yeah. Um, then, yeah, then there's that, you know, this is embargoed, uh, you know, would, would you like to get it in advance? Um, and presumably, yes, I, I understand that on one level, it's so that people can get it written up and on the starting blocks. So as soon as the embargo lifts, you can just fire it out. But for sort of trade journalism, like I do, nothing's ever that time sensitive. Mm. I don't need to get a story out half an hour before the FT, you know, unless it was a genuine scoop. Yeah, I don't need to get it half an hour before the FT or light reading or, or, you know, um, telecom TV or whatever. It's not that time sensitive. So that doesn't really matter to me. And then the other, the other downside of it is if you sent it, if you sent it a couple of days before and I haven't remembered to give myself a reminder, I'm, I might not even remember um, to cover it when the embargo actually lifts. So that could be a negative side yeah. of doing that embargo technique. And there's other things that I think PRs like to do, like, you know, oh, would you like to speak to our spokesperson? Which again, I can understand why it might add value to me and I can understand why from a PR point of view, if I've gone to the trouble of speaking to your spokesperson, the chances are I'm going to write it up because otherwise, you know, otherwise it's a sunk cost. You know, I've put that much effort in so far. I might as well get some, get some deliverable out of it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, currently in my current form, I just don't have the time to do it justice. It's quite laborious speaking to someone and, and transcribing it and, and doing it properly. Someone like Ian will do a good job on that, but he typically will only publish about one story a day. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't have all the other editorial responsibilities I do. So he can he can spend the time doing it. And he's more professional than I am. <laughs> uh and puts more effort in. So um yeah, that's the thing about other little um tricks like that. I'm sure they're they're offered in good faith, but I'm sure you also think if I can get this person on the phone, the chances of this turning into a bit of coverage is probably much higher as well. Yeah, I also think there's the you know the the side of things that if we're offering something to somebody in advance we feel that there's value in that so they're getting they're getting it in advance and they can plan their day accordingly when it you know on the day it goes live so we feel that I think there is value to the journalists but you know some journalists appreciate it some some journalists don't but it's interesting to hear your perspective yeah like I said I'd probably appreciate it more if I was in a position to do it justice Mm. Um, and that's a dilemma you guys, your industry's got. I mean, the ratio of PR professionals to journalists compared yeah. to 20 yeah. years ago must have completely flipped. Yeah. There just aren't that many hacks around. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe maybe one day, uh, maybe I'll get you back on the pod and ask you what it is you guys do with your time when, you, when you're not trying to get journalists to write stuff up because it, you must be called upon to do all sorts of other comms-related stuff. Yeah. Um, whether it's social media or events or, or whatever. So I'm sure your 
your profession has sort of evolved a fair bit over the last decade or two as well. Yeah, definitely. There's been a lot of change, that's for sure when we cast our minds back to when we when we first started. Um, but but in terms of kind of how many emails you get then in a, in a day, how many are we talking, kind of hundreds? Um, I'm going to guess, so I, I, I had occasion to give this some thought. I'm going I'm to guess 50 to 100, let's say, in a day. And I don't do, I don't have very much internal corporate stuff. That's one of the nice things about my job. They pretty much just leave me alone. I think partly is because the in my company they don't they don't necessarily understand journalism that well, and they probably see the way I on the rare occasions I come into the office see the way I conduct myself and just think this bloke is clearly obnoxious. I think we'll just give him a wide berth because who needs that extra aggro in my life? No, I don't know. I've no idea if that's what they think. Maybe I'm just flattering myself that I'm more more of an imposing figure than I am. But, um, yeah, so I don't have too much internal stuff. So I would say of those, let's say, 100 emails I get a day, about 90 of them will be incoming unsolicited PRE ones, right. of which I'll probably ignore 90% of them. And I think I probably, you know, my filter's probably too crude, but it's partly as a product of there just being so much coming in, it's easy to overlook stuff. Mm. And so what, so what you end up doing it's people who've done old fashioned PR and actually got to know me such that when their name comes up, it rings a little conscious bell in my head going, okay, that's from this person who I know. Mm. Then I'll have a look at it. Um, and, you know, and obviously if I know that person as well, we can, we can have some kind of frank dialogue as to whether they're barking up the right tree in whatever initiative that they're throwing at me then. And then everyone else, you know, if it's from some broad brush PR agency who I've never met any of the people and the, and the names are just interchangeable. Even if it's useful, I might miss it, which is obviously my bad. Yeah. But, you know, this is, this is what I mean by my filter being too crude on that one. Mm. I just can't afford to, to yeah. properly read every email, let alone reply to it. Mm. Especially if people are going, oh, why aren't you covering this? I'm not going to give them a reason. Mm. Um, I'm not covering it because I don't feel like it. That's the reason. <laughs> Really some cool. big load of qualified feedback I haven't got time <laughs> no absolutely and you know rightly so 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 it's really about the person who's sending it to you needs to be really you know somebody you know and yeah well and I'll say this you know not just because I'm speaking to you but agencies like yours I've known Liberty for over a decade uh, <laughs> as an agency um, ones that are aligned to our sector and bothered to get to know us Obviously, the absolute best way to get us get to know us, take us out and get us pissed, um, which you've, uh, when when circumstance allow it, you've always been very good at. Um, and and there are a few others uh, that are good at that, and the rest of them just don't bother. Yeah. Now, maybe they bother, you know, maybe there are other titles. Telecoms becomes a very small title. Uh, maybe they do a lot of it with... FT or whatever, or maybe the the sort of whining and dining happens a lot more on on consumer journalism rather than business journalism. I don't know. I don't necessarily lament it. You know, I can afford to buy myself a beer, but I've always quite enjoyed it. It's always been a real perk to me, just going out and just meeting people. Yeah. You know, I'm 50 years old. There are not many other circumstances where some 25-year-old woman's going to take me out and get me pissed. So... Yeah. Um, you know, but no, just generally just meeting people, having a conversation. I mean, it's it's socially, I suppose, slightly geared in an advantageous way in so much as, you know, a PR agency isn't going to take a journalist out and be a dick to them. People are going to be accommodating, perhaps laugh at my jokes even when they're not very funny. I don't know. But generally, it just creates, it just makes for a nice social vibe. Yeah. And so it's a win-win, but but people have to be prepared to put the budget into it and the time and 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 I suppose care about getting to know the journalist. Yeah. And I, I just I've got the impression over the 15 or so years I've been a journalist that that there's that people seem to not be so bothered about that, which I think I think they're missing out on. It's not just yeah. bad for me in terms of subsidized alcohol and people laughing at my jokes. I think it's bad for them in terms of them not having you know better access to a journalist mm, in the right relationships and context yeah. absolutely right um 
So what, uh, t- tell us a little bit about Bribe of the Week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a way to get coverage, but... Um, no. Yeah. No, although some people think it yeah no it's brilliant I love the the tongue-in-cheek aspect of it yeah well that's so that's exactly it it's it's tongue-in-cheek I mean I like I just I just like sort of using non-euphemistic language yeah and you know if you uh if uh you know if liberty I mean you were you were you were attempting to have a, a um a sort of social event for journalists recently but the the rona put paid to it but you know if you did that is technically while there's no well it's not a bribe in so much as there's anything transactional about it it's not like you're saying we'll get you pissed as long as you cover our clients technically if you're going to be tongue-in-cheek about it it is a bribe in so much as you're getting i'm getting something for nothing and that's all i mean by it and uh, and I just like calling them a bribe. I never think of them as a bribe. And obviously, I wouldn't ever allow myself to be subject to an actual bribe, anything transactional. Mm. Um, but yeah, I just it just makes me laugh to call them a bribe. Like, uh, funnily enough, you know, talking about that Virgin Media story, they sent um, they sent a little thing through the post that arrived today, a little bottle of gin, a couple of bottles of tonic, um, and that. that if, as long as I remember on Thursday when we do the pod, that'll get a bribe of the week mention. It's just funny. And people yeah. like it and everyone knows it's not, I mean, occasionally, and this has been funny in itself, some people have gone, oh yeah, just for your bribe of the week, how about I send you some beers and you cover my client? And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> that's the whole, I wouldn't be calling it a bribe if it was actually a bribe. My bosses watch this podcast. Why would I publicly admit to accepting bribes? Um, but uh, so it almost takes the sting out of it. Yeah, and you know, and if people, like, I think the best bribe we got is off um, Danielle Royston, who brought in this Yeti cooler that we use every week now for the pod. Oh, and it's yeah. a really cool thing. She brought it over from the states, and so oh. we're grateful for it. And we're like, thanks a lot, but we're not going to be any nicer to Danielle as a result of receiving it than we would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. So it's just sort of gratefully received. And yeah, I just call it a bribe because that's how I talk. Yeah. And um, in terms of kind of events and this kind of ties to, you know, the seeing people and meeting people side of things, I know you've you've been to a few, haven't you, over the last few weeks that you kind of mention on the on the pod, um, whether they're kind of launch events or, or and actually generally I've I've I mean, I don't know whether this is this is the case, but from what I've heard from you, there's been more kind of closed off the record sort of mm, uh, Chatham House rules kind of sort of events um, where they you know com- companies mostly sort of the large organisations that the telcos or the big vendors get a group of journalists together. Um, there's not necessarily news per se that they're announcing sometimes there is sometimes there isn't and sometimes it's just an opportunity to get journalists together with execs and talk about things off the record um you know it sounds like you kind of quite value those kind of opportunities um yeah yeah I mean so the thing about off the record is especially the kind of journalism the kind of writing I do so I, I don't have the resource or, or possibly even the skill to get like proper Woodward and Bernstein scoops so the way I try and add value is through opinion and analysis and maybe a bit of humour every now and then. And you're only going to be able to add really useful opinion analysis if you know what you're talking about. And that's where the off-the-record stuff comes in. You're like, oh, okay. So that's what they really think. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's perfectly there's perfectly legitimate ways of introducing that without betraying the, the arrangement of off-the-record. You can just say, you know, we've spoken to people within the industry and, and got the impression that dot 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 mm-hmm. and and that still has some value people don't question it they go well, okay if scott says that we don't reckon he's just making it up he probably has chatted to someone at, at bt or huawei or whatever um and you know we wouldn't even name the name there's certain there's certain games you can play with language where you can keep things anonymous while still strongly implying that you got it from a you know juicy source um and yeah i mean and it all goes in your head you know, even at my age, 50, it sort of stays in my head reasonably well. Um, and uh, and then when you come to write something up, you can say, you know, I, I get the imp- I've got the impression from previous conversation that this company might be headed a bit more in this direction. 
And then people who read it within the industry, you know, the thing about trade journalism, it's not read by normal people. It's read by people within the industry and it will also be read by sort of equity analysts and, you know, people who make money out out of stocks and shares and that sort of thing. And they'll just be looking for any tiny little tidbits you know, we're not saying necessarily saying ama- anything amazing. It, it could just be looking for um, sanity checking. So, like, you know, I already think this. Let's see who else thinks it. And mm-hmm. if scotttelecoms.com thinks it and Ian Light Reading thinks it and a few other people think it, then it gives you a bit more confidence with the gut feel you were making on that. So I think that's where sort of trade press has some value. You're just adding to the general mix of intelligence and knowledge and consensus about a given thing. And then sometimes we'll go the other way. Like Ian, Ian and I on the podcast push quite push hard, um, quite hard back on on certain things that uh, that most of the industry doesn't push back on. For example, the move by telcos into the public cloud. Yeah. Um, you know, you have people like Danielle, who's who, who's a, a self proclaimed evangelist on it, but we're like, okay, but you're also you're also putting all your stuff in the hands of someone else. I mean, surely that can't be unconditionally good. There's got to be a downside to that. And we're all used to it. You know, we're all used to, as consumers, having cloud. You know, instead of buying CDs, you have a Spotify subscription or whatever. I still prefer to have CDs because what if one day I'm sick of Spotify or they do something I don't like? Then I lose all my stuff as soon as I stop subscribing. So I'm a bit edgy about the cloud. It could be a bit of Ludditeness. Uh, another one, you know, we're critical of, we've always been critical of claims made about 5G, where the industry just wants to be com- completely cheerleading about it. But, yeah, for you as a consumer, why should you give a shit about 5G? It doesn't really change your life at all, does it? Yeah. Or something like Open RAN, which is very buzzwordy. You know, is, is it is it this is it this panacea that people are making it out to be? So that's the other way in which you add value, I think, is by being a bit contrarian. Yeah, showing both sides of the argument. Mm. And, and again, you know, back to your question, it, you're able to be more contrarian if you've got more of a sense of what people are talking about behind the scenes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've just heard someone just, you know, like, for example, with operators, I won't name any. We've chatted to plenty of operators who share our scepticism about Open RAN. Mm-hmm. So it actually makes you a bit more strident. It's not just me. I'm telling you, there's plenty of people within the industry who, who aren't so sure about this. So that's where we add a bit of value. And those off-the-record debates and conversations, obviously, um, are part of that. Now, when an, an organisation or a PR team um, is organising an event, given what you've said about your day and the fact that it starts quite early and you've got to get a certain number of stories done, the best time for an event, that would be sort of late afternoon, kind of yeah. early evening, yeah? Obviously, it's the evening, it's normally going to lapse into alcohol anyway so that, that's yeah. another priority even i even i draw a line at am drinking unless i'm obviously on holiday and in the airport everyone's got a drink in there airport. that's just the rules isn't it yeah. but um no i mean you know it, it would depend sometimes people do breakfast briefings yeah. with me that's more just a sort of having to get up and get my shit together that early to leave the house and go to something. I just think, why? Why are you imposing this on me? You yeah. At least make it lunch. Um, you know, especially if all they're doing is just chucking a croissant at you. You know, mm-hmm. if we're going to have a breakfast briefing, let's do that remotely. If we're going to do it in person, let's be civilised and at least make it lunch or dinner, yeah. is my view. Um, and, yeah, I, th- I would have thought most people, certainly digital publishers, they're going to be on a daily cycle where they want to get stuff up in the morning. Um, depending on which time zone they're they're geared towards. So yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't ever recommend a morning event unless it was something. I mean, sometimes it happens where you've got a morning event where there's news attached, um, and they'll and they'll give you scope. Let's say they have a morning event and the news embargo breaks at midday, and mm. then you've got a, an hour or two to turn it around. Especially if they've done this is where embargoes do come in handy. You got a morning event. You've already had the story under embargo, so you can write the the essence, the spine of the story you're going to write. Then you get to interview someone, and then you can embellish your story with a quote from them. Yeah. Um, that would make sense if it was distinctly choreographed to help someone produce the best story they can by a given specific time in the day. Otherwise, if it's just a bit of a chat or it's an off-the-record thing, 
there's just no need to impose that kind of morning rigor on people. And do you do you like to um, you know do things in your evenings? I know some people can feel that their evenings are sort of precious. precious. But no, no, not at all. Don't mind doing stuff. I'm, I'm appalled at the at the limited appetite of people half my age to go out in the evening mm. and get bought drinks and yeah. talk shit. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know these are sort of generational differences I don't know Um, but no I'll go out I mean we we've had one I had one uh, company try and get me out next Monday and I sort of draw a line at that Monday I like to give myself at least one evening off you know what I mean (laughs) Monday's a big ask to go out on a sesh and it kind of kind of puts you kind of puts you on the back foot for the rest of the week doesn't it yeah, yeah, you don't. Oh, so, have- yeah, I think, uh, and and some people are precious about Fridays. I'd quite happily um, go out and do a, a work related thing on a Friday, but some people seem to be very precious about that. So you get a you get real competition for Thursdays. I think that seems to yeah. be the sweet spot. But yeah, I'll do a Wednesday, I'll do a Thursday, I'll do a Friday. I'd probably rather give Monday or Tuesday a miss, just to not get off to too much of a flyer. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good to know. Good to know. Um, so kind of we're we're almost at the end of the year aren't we um Mm -hmm. so kind of looking back over the year has there been something particularly creative a company has done that sort of stood out for you um in terms of grabbed your attention I mean it's been tough it's only really face-to-face stuff's only really started Mm. as of about September I mean first three months of the year sorry about that noise um first three months of the year was complete lockdown for everyone wasn't it yeah and then we've got that sort of incremental what we're allowed to do thing yeah um uh but no I don't think anyone's done anything amazing I think you know we like to feel a little bit pampered we like to think a company spent a few quid um so if it's a nice venue uh and there's a nice spread and you've got some decent execs have turned up and it just looks feels like the company's made an effort um I think that counts on something but it doesn't need to be too gimmick gimmicky I think again in, on the consumer side you'll get stuff that's a bit more gimmicky they might I don't know god knows what I'll do take mm. you to a theme park or something yeah um I don't need any of that nonsense um just uh yeah just a, just a decent venue um decent spread decent chat uh I mean if you if you like doing big events you know Certainly, having things like bad Wi-Fi's is just a colossal schoolboy error yeah. for people to do. If they're doing big press events and no one can get on the Wi-Fi, that's just that's just a, a massive dropping of the ball, as far as I'm concerned. But no, I mean, I can't think of anything too much. You know, back back in the day when when you guys used to handle Qualcomm press trips, I thought you always did them really well. And I know part of that is because because the the contact at Qualcomm was always quite a stickler mm. for doing these things properly, you know. And and you feel a bit you feel a bit spoiled. And that naturally, you know, the interesting thing about that. I mean, I know you guys don't handle Qualcomm now, so um, you might not appreciate me banging on about it, but it's it's relevant to answer your question. The interesting thing about that is Qualcomm didn't ask too much in return. Yeah, they were kind of a bit pissed off if you didn't turn up to their main press events at Mobile World Congress if they were handling that trip. But what they did was just generate goodwill and generate visibility such that, you know, if something happened with Qualcomm, you're not going to say it's, a, it's the best thing since sliced bread, but there is there is some kind of immeasurable level of goodwill. And perhaps you're more likely to give them benefit of the doubt when they say the latest chip is is brilliant than someone who you've never met or, or been, on, been on an event with. So it's that yeah. it's that intangible goodwill thing. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, valuable. Yeah, yeah, and and you know most journalists are quite skint, so you mm. don't actually need to spend that much money to make us feel like we're royalty. Mm. No, just a you know a bit of bubbly, some sort of some naughty canapes, a nice environment, yeah. uh, and suddenly and suddenly we feel sport rotten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I completely, I completely understand where you're where you're coming from. I mean, nobody is ever going to try and make you right certain things about um companies and and expect that you know bribes are actually going to be bribes but um well there's certain parts of the world i won't be so indiscreet as to mention where they do have a more transactional culture 
Um, and you might have a bit more of that, but I've I've never I've never had it myself. No, no. Um, actually, it's that's quite interesting. It kind of leads us quite nicely to talk about this sort of distinction between church and state in mm. terms of um, telecoms.com. You're very very distinct, aren't you, in terms yeah. of the editorial team from the the commercial team, and you you keep yourselves quite quite separate. So spending lots of money with you isn't necessarily going to mean that you you write up um you know press releases and stuff in in a more favorable way that would be no very very much very much not so i think a mistake a lot of media have played is a sort of paradigm that that gets characterized as pay to play where they think that if they suck up to people editorially they're more likely to spend money with them and maybe they are Mm -hmm. but the reason the reason that short termist is quite simple in, in what a lot of people don't understand about the media model, and and I dare say my employers sometimes struggle to understand, but I don't mean this in a scathing way. It's just not, it's not the core informer thing. The core informer thing is events and, and 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 some other forms of business information, but not necessarily journalistic. Hmm. Um, is that the media model is that the 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 content producers grow and maintain an audience. Then the commercial people work out how to monetize that audience. It's got to be that way round. If you try and put the cart before the horse and have the commercial people saying, we really want to get money out of Acme widgets, um, can you write some nice stuff about Acme widgets? Then why should you have any kind of audience? Why should anyone read your site if yeah. they think that you're only writing stuff for short-term commercial gain? So I think one of the reasons, like like telecoms.com um, traffic has been growing fairly steeply year on year for the last few years, and I like to think that the, the reason is because they know that if something goes up, it's the sincerely held position of whoever's written it, and it's completely untainted by any commercial considerations. And there'll be plenty of times where I'll, if, if the situation um, demands it, I'll write something scathing about someone who I know spends money with us. And it never, I never even hesitate for one second to do it mm. because my only loyalty is to my audience, to people who read it and to, and to convey information to them and, and make them want to come back for more. Mm. So that's why you've got to have the ch- separation of church and state. As soon as people start thinking that that thing you wrote, that you're sort of consistently really accommodating to this one company, then why should they, then the trust's gone. Mm. It's, it's basically lying you know like in personal relationships if you if you've got someone who consistently lies to you you're going to struggle to ever believe what they say about anything aren't you mm-hmm. even if their lying was quite contained and they're only lying about one thing they're embarrassed about or whatever then it starts to the doubt starts to enter into your mind as to what else they lie about and i think that applies with journalism saying claiming something is editorial when it's commercial is tantamount to lying and if you're lying to your audience, then why should they stick with you? So it's really as simple as that. It's it's completely short-termist to do that. And I think so many media have shot themselves in the foot out of desperation in, in the last decade or so because um, Google and Facebook and other mm. big internet flat platforms have taken all their advertising money, that they've gone entirely the wrong direction in their panic and gone for this sort of short-termist, either pandering to advertisers or just pandering to an increasingly niche audience. Mm. But you'll get this with some titles that decide to go all in on the culture war and, and they'll just pander to a certain kind of subset of the culture war and thus alienate everyone else who's on the other side. Mm. I think they've all got it wrong. I think, I think they should have just held their nerve, stuck by their guns, kept writing good content and then worried about how to adapt their commercial model accordingly. And, I, and I'm very lucky in that way because part of the handy thing about Informa not being that dialed into journalism is that no one further up food chain ever really tries to poke their nose into what I do. So I've been able to just keep writing Scott stuff and no one's ever put any pressure on me to do otherwise. I think if they had, it would have been a, an awkward conversation. But, you know, but... I'm not going to claim that I'm that much of a purist. I've still got bills to pay. I've still got dependents. Push came to shove. Maybe I would have been forced to compromise, but luckily I never have. I've never been put in that situation. Yeah. Well, so be it. And long may that continue, hey? Yeah, well, hopefully now. The precedent's set now. Um, I'd be amazed if someone suddenly 
poke their nose in after seven and a half years of me doing this stuff. And you've got, um, obviously, you've got your new team member, Andrew. Have you got plans to expand the team further in 2022? Or just can, are you going to continue to use freelancers? I, I will certainly pitch for it. Um, you know, all companies have basically had about a, a year or so of just freezing everything. Mm. Because, you know, everyone bar bar drug companies and tech giants have had a nightmare over the last year or so. Um, so it's a matter of the normal budgetary process of pitching it. Um, and, you know, it, it depends what they want. You know, it's their toy. I don't own the site. Um, it depends what they want. If they want it to grow, if they want traffic to grow, if they want revenue to grow and all that sort of thing, then I'll just go, well, you know, it's not just going to, we can't just magic it out of thin air. And, you know, if I did get more writers, it would present an interesting challenge to me because sometimes I struggle to even find store four interesting stories in a day to write about telecoms. Yeah. Um, but it's a challenge that I would welcome. And, and you, I go yeah. on, sorry. No, I was going to say, when, when, it, when it comes to the stories, do you um, sort of farm out what the freelancers or what Andrew's writing? So do you say, right, okay going to go through my emails I'm going to go through what the news agenda is today in the morning and then you go right Andrew you cover this Mary you cover this I'd like people oh. to pitch to me ideally but I need to have done my due diligence such that I can have a qualified position on whatever they pitch mm -hmm. um, if they pitch something I haven't looked up then obviously I'll go and look into it but no, I think it's a much better dynamic if whoever it is, whether they're in-house or freelance, is pitching stories to you. Mm. Um, partly because they've got more investment in it. Yeah. Um, you know, like certain, I'm, I'm a really big believer in writers writing about stuff that they find interesting and they're passionate about. And so, you know, one freelancer might find the operator sector really interesting and they might bafflingly find operator quarterlies interesting to write up, which I find incredibly dull. Um, but go for it. Then you do that. And someone else might be really interested in the sort of digital economy and, and the big tech and all that sort of thing. Then go for it. You do that. Mm. And so that's where you have the traditional media model, people having a beat. Yeah. Where they're specialist in and they're expert in. Yeah. So that, that's that's what I'd, I do like. And just and then I'm sitting there, you know, in the, in the middle of the spider web, having people pitching to me and going, yeah, that one looks good. Or I don't know, that one's a bit thin. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's, that's the model I like. So what do you think? I mean, I think, um, lots of people will be listening and thinking, right, what does Scott think from an industry perspective will be big next year? Right. Um, rise into your crystal ball. What do you think? Yeah. Well, I mean, I've, you know, I haven't even had time. Normally I try and do a predictions piece around this time of year but I haven't had time to do it. And God knows I've got enough incoming stuff from PR agencies going. <laughs> here's, here's my client's predictions. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you can get sort of cheap and easy copy out of that. You just copy and paste a few different ones and make it look like you've actually done some work when all you've really done is a collation job. But um, I'd rather not do that. I'd rather be proactive and sort of send out questions to people and, and, and manage the process. But I don't think I've got time this year. But me and my predictions, I mean, within our space, um, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the big geopolitical thing of US versus China and how that's going to play out. Uh, is, is the US going to find some more Chinese companies to ban? Is China going to reciprocate? You know, imagine if they suddenly banned Apple from China. That would be a big story. Um, and then in terms of the, the telecoms, it tends to be either tech or corporate. So M&A is always interesting, but I don't know, there's not that much scope for, for who can buy who. It's quite consolidated, the industry. Um, and in terms of tech, I mean, obviously we're still in the 5G era. The industry's still trying to work out a compelling pitch for 5G, to be honest. They're still trying to find out a way in which investment in 5G is going to yield adequate return on investment, which is not yet obvious. Um, yeah. the, the most the consensus seems to be it's going to be very much on a b2b way like things like private networks things like low, low latency um, enabling sort of 
better sort of connected robotics and and automated factories and, and all that sort of thing, really sort of boring but worthy stuff. Um, so, yeah, there'll be that. And then within even more sort of niche technology, there's stuff like um, Open RAN, which, which is a technological development that's taken on a political character because um, on the technological side, it's just trying to decouple all the various components within the radio access network, the RAN, i.e. the, the actual masts that, that, that transmit all the, the wireless signals to our phones. Um, they generally you buy the whole shebang off one big vendor like Ericsson or Nokia or Huawei, and they're trying to decouple all that such that maybe you could just cherry pick and just have the antenna from one and the baseband from another and software from another and, and all that, which which sounds good and good for competition and is obviously dangerous to the business model of the of the big kit vendors, but in practice it might not save anyone any money and it might not achieve any of the things that people are attributing to it. And the reason it's taken on a political element is because the West has, or at least the UK, the US and its close allies have kind of banned Huawei from their networks. Um, They're left with this duopoly of of Nokia and Ericsson. And now they're suddenly like, oh, duopoly's not good. We don't want that. So let's try and manufacture more competition. So they're trying to solve the problem they've created. Hmm. Um, but I don't think, you know, I will remain sceptical that, that Open RAN is, is the panacea, is the solution to that, that they think it is. But that will definitely be a big issue next year. Yeah. Continued fibre rollout will be a big issue. And whenever you talk about fibre rollout, you've got, you've got state intervention. You know, um, the operators are always going begging to the government for more public money to help them with their fibre rollout. And conversely, you don't get a, a single press release to do with um, fixed line infrastructure without some MP jumping on it going, yes, this just shows how I'm doing my job properly. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I suppose the intersection between telecoms and politics is always going to be a big issue because because it's highly regulated, because the barriers to entry are so high. Mm. You know, you could, you couldn't, we couldn't just go off and start Scott and Elena telecoms tomorrow. You yeah. need, you need, you need, tens, hundreds of billions of pounds to, to get into the networking business. Mm. So because the barriers to entry is so high, it needs to be regulated, and, and that makes it political as well, because infrastructure is related to the, the health of the country and the competitiveness of the country. So I guess, yeah, off the top of my head, as a brain dump, those are, those are some of the themes, a lot of which are sort of eternal. Yeah. Well, we'll have to um, watch, see whether you've predicted correctly. Well, I haven't stuck my neck out too far. I I think we can safely see that we're right. If I was going to, you know, if I was going to stick my neck out, it'd be like um, Ericsson's Goodbye Nokia or something like that, which of (laughs) course wouldn't wouldn't go wouldn't pass any kind. They couldn't afford it, and it wouldn't pass any kind of antitrust thing. (laughs) But yeah, calling some M and A would be interesting. But there's just not going to be that much of it. They they won't allow it in Europe in terms of operator M and A. They're kind of they're kind of obsessed with about four operators per country, and there's just not that much scope for M and A within within the vendor. Perhaps in the tier two, tier three, you might get a little bit more of it, but I, I'm not I'm not clever enough to call any of those. I'm afraid. Mm. Shame. <laughs> well, we're obviously not bribing you enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I was able to call them accurately, I'd be an equity analyst and I'd be getting paid a lot more money. <laughs> great well look i said i'd keep you for half an hour and i've kept you for way longer than that so no problem it seems like a good a good point to finish um so thank you very much for for your time i know that people will have found it really useful hopefully your own podcast as well um to subscribe to so um how can people subscribe to that yeah just um either go to the site or just look it up on on whatever it's just called the telecoms.com podcast not very imaginative um so look it up and yeah i mean if you thought you know if you thought i said now is it in any way interesting and you want more of it that's what we've got going on but we, we you know we've got a dialogue between me and ian from light reading we drink beers we swear i haven't been that sweary actually on this podcast no, you because i'm not drinking no yeah you haven't um so um but yeah it's like a combination of of just sort of matey chit chat, but we do get in the weeds and talk about some quite technical stuff as well. And people seem to seem to like that, that combo. 
Yeah, so, I'd fully recommend yeah. it. It's it's great to kind of as a sort of digest of what the latest te- telecoms and tech uh, news is because you you don't cover just telecoms. You do. Yeah, we ta- we try and pick yeah. three topics, and and the third one we'll try and make it a bit more a left field. Mm. Yeah, no, I fully recommend it. So I hope other people will will uh, tune cool. in. Cool, well. and then now uh, it's your your turn to come back sometime. Yeah, absolutely. Why? We we'll just keep bouncing back and forth so people are sick yeah. of <laughs> listening to us chat to each other. Well, I did talk about it coming and doing a quiz, didn't I? Towards the oh, end. Oh, that's of the true. Day. Yes, that's kind of petered out, didn't it? Yeah, I don't know how many more podcasts you've got in you before the we've end. We've only got we've only got two. We've got one this Thursday, which is the ninth. I don't know when this will be published. Yeah. And then we've got we're going to be doing one on the seventeenth, and that's it for the year. Oh yeah, it's our Christmas party on the seventeenth, so I better. There we go. It's not going to happen, is it? We'll have to do something in January instead. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I've got to warn you, I'm, I'm doing dry January. Oh, are you? It won't be half as fun. No, I'll have to. I'll be all, I'll be all sort of withdrawn and resentful. Uh, even more, even more depressed than you were a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much, Scott. All and right, it's a pleasure. Thank you. It's great chatting to you. Yeah, perfect. Have a lovely evening and a great Christmas. And thank yes, you, same to you for listening as well. Take care. Cheers. <laughs>